Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex. I'm a writer here at TechCrunch, and I'm joined today by the whole crew, including Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, how are you? I'm back from vacation, so I have a lot to say and a lot to write, which I could not have said last week. So I'm just happy. Yes, you have to take vacation as a writer when you reach the end of the page and your brain just shuts down and that's it. That's when you have to go away, recharge, read a couple novels and be back to happy. Speaking of that, Marianne, how are you? I'm doing great. Very happy Natasha's back. More importantly, Alex, how are you? I am medium bad, but I am smiling and no. caffeinating my way straight through it. And speaking of that, we have a packed show today, including funding rounds from Fertilis, a lot of notes about how to build a fintech service for SaaS companies, and if that really is a niche or not. We're going to talk about the hiring game, the great resignation through the lens of Seekout and CareerCom are funding rounds. And then at the end, we're going to talk about Y Combinator's new terms, what they mean for investors, what they mean for founders, what they mean for founders and investors on other shores, and also what really does it mean to add value. So quite a lot to get through, guys. I'm really excited about this. But first, let's talk about fertility. Natasha, what is uh, Fertilis and where is it from? To understand Fertilis, you really need to understand like the IVF process. So I'll just walk us through that really quickly. The standard IVF process involves transferring cells to different environments in a Petri dish. And then there's like this whole process from retrieving the egg to carrying the dish across the lab to then putting the embryo into the tract. It's a lot of things. And what I like about Fertilis, which is a two-year-old Adelaide-based startup, is that it's trying to make that process more realistic, not faster or cheaper, just more realistic. And its whole product is this patented 3D printing cradle that's meant to help hold those cells in an environment that, quote unquote, closely resembles the environment of the human body. Okay, this makes sense to me now. So this is not dealing with the IVF process of like ovary stimulation egg retrieval, sperm washing, or combinations thereof. This is after you've combined everything. Fertilis's little cradle will hold the collection of cells and essentially help it incubate. I'm excited by this, and it just raised about $2 million. Yeah, there's a quote from one of the founders. I thought he, he summed it up pretty nicely. Every time an embryo gets picked up by a clinician, the environment is negatively affected. It sounds dramatic, but it's actually very, very true. And if anyone's ever gone through the process of IVF, it's it's very emotionally draining and stressful. So I think anything, anything that could help like improve chances would be very, very welcome. So I'm I'm fascinated by this technology. And also because they're working with cells, so they have a greater chance of overcoming FDA hurdles. A lot of people have fertility issues. It's very common, especially as people tend to have children a little bit, little bit later. Um, both men and women's fertility declines as they age. And so a lot of people turn to this in their you know, early to late 30s, for example. According to the data that we have from the story, roughly about one third of IVF transfers result in a natural birth. The numbers are not amazing. And so you know, making them better will help a lot of lives. And I, I, I think just be a general boon for our species. So uh, that's for Tellus. Obviously, we're big fans. Let's see how it goes. But let's talk about something that's a little bit less emotionally fraught and talk about SaaS startup investing, or sorry, financing, Marianne. What is ARC and where has it been? It's been hiding, apparently. They're out to provide a financial solution for SaaS startups. So they, they've got a very niche focus uh, on SaaS companies, and they want to help finance them, help them save money, help them... Um, spend money, all sorts of everything related to finance, but we can't call them a digital bank. They're not a digital bank. They're a digital financial institution that has the ability for startups to receive and spend money, <laughs> but not hold it in a, a bank-like relationship, I guess. Yeah, it doesn't deserve a title. That's so sad. 
It's it's the friends with benefits of the financial world. It's not married. It's keeping it casual. There's this whole group of new startups out there offering alternative financing. ARC wants to help these SaaS startups that don't really want to raise equity yet or raise venture capital, or maybe they're in between rounds. They don't want to dilute their ownership anymore. They don't want to take on debt. So it's a way for them to offer these SaaS startups working capital. I was trying to like rack my brain to think of other examples of fintechs that are set up like pretty loudly to just address one business model. And I couldn't think of any examples other than SaaS. Like I feel like SaaS is the only business model we've seen being served by fintechs. But I'm wondering if there's room for any other ones or if even during your conversations, you guys have any thoughts on what could work for fintechs. Not to presage where we're going next, but didn't Brex put out kind of different verticals early in their life? And one of the verticals they had was e-commerce, I think. So there's, there's, I think, some targeted niche fintech products out there. But Natasha, I think you're dead on that it's mostly SaaS. And I think the reason for that is SaaS isn't that narrow. It's a business model that applies across a huge number of of, of verticals and industries and so forth. It's essentially like if you make software, this is just how you sell it. And so the software market, which is essentially the same thing as the SaaS market today, is huge. And so that's why ARC is a curious concept to me. I think another reason why so many other startups want to serve SaaS companies is they have predictable recurring revenues. So it makes it easier, right, to finance a company when you know they're going to get a certain amount of money at the end of the year or the beginning of the year, right? So they're offering them this upfront capital. When I was prepping for today's show, I was like, is this just like ramp Brex? but with a bigger SaaS financing element, or is it not like that? I don't know. I think what I find interesting about ARC is they're very much claiming to have this vertical focus. When I thought about SaaS startups and recurring revenue and working capital, one of the first companies that popped into my head was Pipe, right? Because what they're doing is very similar in the sense that they're They started out with a SaaS focus. They're wanting to help them with their working capital. Pipe is different in that it's created this marketplace where it's pairing startups with investors so they can get that capital up front. And over time, Pipe has expanded. So it's not just serving SaaS startups. It's it's working with a lot of other companies, including e-commerce, for example. So ARC maintains that its vertical focus is really, really what's going to set it apart because it's it's going to be like just laser focused on SaaS, not looking to expand, at least not yet that I know of. And, you know, we should mention that ARC just <laughs> announced it raised $11 million in equity and $150 million debt financing. And it said it took on that debt so its clients wouldn't have to. And NFX led the round. I want to go back to this one more time because I'm not entirely clear yet. So it, the piece says that you can save, spend, and borrow on kind of a single platform. And it, it's, it's, so is this a, a, a SaaS financing service or is this a broader financial services group that mostly serves SaaS? I guess is kind of the, the thing I'm still not a hundred percent on. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's exclusively serving SaaS, but they're wanting to do more than just offer that working capital. They're they're wanting to be like everything finance for a SaaS company. So they're so, a SaaS neobank non-bank. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like so they're saying that you know, they don't want to just like help them with their capital and then move on. They want to like help them with all things finance. If you're slightly confused about why we're confused about why some of these things are slightly different, it's because there's so much kind of nuance overlap. between business model <laughs> and there's also so much overlap. It, right. It's tough. And, and, and Pipe is a marketplace to sell your revenue. This is a place to sell part of your revenue. Some companies will just loan you money. Then there's, you know, Silicon Valley Bank. Ugh, it's a mess. Anyways, speaking about loans, Marianne Brex raise more money somehow, again, for the millionth time, what's going on? 
Yeah, well, so this isn't entirely new news because we actually reported on it back in October that this deal was in the works. Brex raised $300 million at a $12.3 billion valuation. We basically just got confirmation of what we already knew. Green Oaks Capital, TCV, co-led the round. A lot of money for a company that's only a few years old. Clearly, Brex has grown and matured in a lot of ways. Another interesting thing that happened and also was announced as part of this financing is that they hired a Meta exec to serve as their new chief product officer. Meta, of course, being the renamed company of (laughs) Facebook. Facebook. So they hired a Facebook exec with a fancy new bumper sticker. It's fundraise aside, like the fact that it's able to recruit from maybe the old guard or the big or, or big tech, um, I think is like a really positive signal for our jobs staying busy and maybe like a more boring signal that like the startup market is not going anywhere because it's been able to recruit these smart people and also obviously convince investors to continue doubling down on their investments. Brex is, is making clear in the hire is part of this. It wants to go beyond startups. It wants to be able to grow with those companies. And as they, their financial needs change, as they mature, it wants to be able to serve them. In other words, this means it's ramping up its efforts to, to compete with others in the space and companies such as Ramp, for example. Brex ramping up <laughs> should have been the headline for this piece. Forget, forget what you wrote, Marianne. You just retitled it for us right here. That's uh, okay. I've got more to come. I'll keep that in mind. Uh, wait, there's going to be more fintech news? I don't believe you. That has not been the case for, for, for literally all time. What's the number? Like 20% of venture capital dollars go to fintech today, something like that? I think that's still yeah, the number from it's last nuts, year. It's, but it's yeah, crazy. I think, I think Brex, um, what Brex is doing is interesting on a lot of levels, and we can all agree on that. Uh, so this this hiring of a meta exec is significant for a few reasons, and and you know we could we could uh, use this opportunity to talk about the sheer number of uh, executives leaving. Yeah, meta. I really want to write a, write out a map at some point of where all these meta executives are going next. If I just had to go from memory, it feels like it's crypto, 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 maybe climate, and then Brex, right? If you just Google like meta exec departure and scroll through the headline list, it, it, you're wondering who's still working there is kind of how it feels. So like points to Brex for hiring Karen DeBounty. Hiring him is a, is a good signal for the company. Obviously, they're very excited about this. Having a chief product officer from a company like Meta, really cool. But it's slightly less of a signal given that apparently Meta is a, is a sinking ship in terms of like executives. Totally. I guess the last point I'll make on Brex and Arc is that these startups totally could not have existed 20 years ago, right? Like these startups that are making you borrow against your future revenue, like helping startups get money faster than they can even spend it feel like such a symptom of the time. I just realized that if, uh, if Brex buys Arc, we could call them Brark which I think is a great startup name, and I'm going to coin that. All right, uh, let's move on to our first major theme of the day, moving past the individual funding rounds to hiring. Uh, talking about this today because a couple of startups hit our radar, including Seek Out, which raised an enormous amount of money, and Career Karma, which raised a little bit less, but I have similar questions about. So let's start with, uh, let's do Seek Out, Marianne. This was a round of enormous size for a relatively good cause, it feels. The Seek Out raised $115 million in a round led by Tiger Global. Um, it's the second time Tiger Global led a round for the company. Uh, they, they also led their, I think it was $65 million raise last year. Don't quote me on that number. But um, anyway, I was I was intrigued by Seek Out and, you know, because it's sort of outside of my normal like realm of fintech. LATAM, prop tech, um, because their their goal really is to help enterprises hire from a more diverse talent pool. And 
anytime a company is really, truly out to help improve diversity, then, you know, I'm going to be excited about it. They're giving companies a way to filter as they look at applicants. So they can do things like filter out the applicant's name, photo, or school attended so that they're not necessarily going to have that unconscious bias when reviewing applications. 300% growth in revenue over the last year. ARR is now in the 25 to $50 million range. It was less valued at $500 million when it raised that $65 million last March. Let's go back about three sentences. Their AR is in a range of 25 to 50. <laughs> I, know, I know it's a pretty broad range, but hey, it's more than most companies give. So I took it. No, I'm glad. No, to be clear, like they get exactly 0.1 points. They get a tenth of a point for being imprecise, but sharing something. I'm just saying like, what would have happened if they told us the number was 37.5 or whatever it is? You know, like would the world have crashed? Would the sky have fallen? You got to be vague. You know, you know, Alex, you got to be a little vague. Mystery. To quote my wife, you got to keep them guessing. And you know what I hate? That phrase. Like, just tell me the number. Like, I know you raised 189 million. Tell me how much ARR you've built. Then I will understand your efficiency. I mean, if the whole point here is that people are ashamed of their progress and they spent too much money, tough. I don't know. That that peeves I, me. I separately have an issue with Seek Out, which I'm trying to be optimistic about. But something I struggle, I guess, well, this is more across any like diversity hiring, diversity focused hiring platform is like, to me, it doesn't seem like the hardest part is finding candidates because underrepresented folks aren't like, don't like, aren't a small percentage of the population. It's more like, how do you retain and keep and elevate and hear them? So I always wonder what it's like, what these platforms are doing beyond finding candidates, because that's an easy way to maybe get um, some people in the door, but I think it's like those same people will leave within a year. So, well, actually, good point, uh, Natasha. And Seek Out, I think, recognizes this. So that's why, like, looking forward, they are definitely emphasizing retention. They're trying to to work with these companies to not only like land these amazing employees, but to keep them. You know what they could do to help answer Natasha's very good question is share data on how good they are at placing candidates in customer companies and how long they last. Right, because and then they could also tell us their actual AR <laughs> number too. Well, yeah, and and it's like the uh, uh, because otherwise, then we don't have a good way of gauging if like they're the ones that are just serving corporations or if they're serving like the employees they actually place. Yeah, good, so good question. That would just be right. like the only worry. Is it diversity theater, diversity window dressing, or is it actually driving a material difference in how employers can hire and retain more diverse talent? Before we move on to a more general discussion, though, uh, Natasha, Career Karma, $40 million. Career Karma, I've been covering for a few years now. They really started as a way for students to navigate the boot camp world. So it would help a student. A student would come to the platform. They want to do some kind of boot camp, but they don't know which one. And Career Karma would help them, help guide them. And now with this new $40 million raise, I talked to the CEO and co-founder, Ruben Harris, about going more like the employee benefit route. So now they are working with employers who are trying to, Marianne, as you were kind of talking about, like upskill and retain employees and career commerce service or, or the benefit that they're going to offer is like, you work at this company, but maybe you want to upskill the way we've seen other companies like Guild um, kind of monopolize or grow in that world. I think that's what they're exactly trying to do now. Use their navigation, but bring it in-house instead of just to consumers. I have some questions about this because I went to the Career Karma site beforehand, just, you know, prepping for this. I hadn't actually looked into the company, heard of it, of course, but hadn't, you know, poked in. It's a free service for people to connect people who want to get, according to the site, more involved in the technology industry into the right kind of classes, courses, and so forth to help them transition with the help of a coach into that part of the world. And so 
if it's offered as an employee benefit, would this help employees on the non-technical side of a company jump internally into the technical side of, of where they currently work? So essentially a way to like train up your own team to build out your own tech stack on a human basis? Is that? That's a good question. I actually don't know like the specifics of if it's going to help people on ramp. My my like hunch is that career karma is going to help tech companies because those are the ones that are really up to speed right now on trying to retain employees amid this great resignation, as we've been talking about, get into higher paying, maybe more niche roles. So maybe going mm. from a salesperson at a tech startup into a more technical role is, is what I'm imagining we could see. Sales engineers are a, a, an important job in software companies, right? I mean, like that's that's kind of sits between sales and the dev team. And it's a super important role because it translates between the two, which is key for customers. Yeah. So I can see this working out. Um, we've also seen some edtech exits uh, recently, Natasha. There was that um, Codecademy deal. So there's uh, there's evidence that these companies can exit as well. Yeah, totally. It, the edtech takeaway here is definitely that all consumer edtech is rushing towards selling to the employer. And like the obvious argument is the enterprise is, is much stickier. But my spicy take is that edtech is realizing that even though consumers care for their services, like they'll use them. Maybe they're not as spendy as they were in the first year of the pandemic. And employers, I think, have more incentives to spend on these services. So I think we're going to see, I mean, even Duolingo, perhaps the most consumer focused startup of all time in ed tech is going the enterprise route. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this came from. This goes back to the whole points of trying to retain employees and help them grow. So like, it's just another way to say, mm -hmm. hey, this is, this is a new perk, especially in this era of remote work that we can offer you. Um, that employees might like. I'm so encouraged by how different employment feels compared to when I left college. It's it's easy to look back six months and see a change, but if you look back like, you know, how old am I now? Uh, look back like uh, 10, 12 years, however old I am. Like it's, it's an entirely different approach to everything. Like what's being hired for, where it's being hired for, the flexibility of location, the ability to upskill with digital services. Like it's actually relatively encouraging. I mean, I don't mean to sound positive, but maybe I do actually feel that way for once. <laughs> That's no, thank you for saying that because a VC the other day who I, who I really like basically told me, cause I, I kind of shared that sentiment. I was like, I'm seeing all my friends raise their hands and get what they deserve at their companies or leave. And they were like, that's not like the environment. That's just you being in your mid twenties. And I was like, that was so disheartening. And I kept that with me. I agree with that. I think it's also the fact that I'm in my early 30s and you're in your mid 20s that we're seeing our, our, our friends really kind of like jump up the, the corporate ladder. I think that it's fun to track the HR, edtech, hiring, retention sort of world. We're even seeing companies in the HR software space like JustWorks go public or at least try to. So lots to keep track of there. Now, putting the pen in all of that, let's talk for the last little bit of the show about accelerators because Y Combinator made a bunch of news this week. And also, Natasha, you wrote a... A really, really interesting piece about accelerators and value additions. So let's start with the YC news. Natasha, do you want to give us a rundown of the changes or do you want me to blather about the numbers? I'll kick it off because I was on vacation when YC changed its check size and I just like saw tweets and convo messages everywhere that was happening. And I was unsurprised when I saw even YC changing its check size, considering how busy our inboxes are. The TLDR is that it's changing its terms and now investing 500,000 in batch startups, changing its terms and now investing 500,000 in batch startups. Previously, it just had $125,000 check sizes for 7% of its startups. And now it has that plus a 375,000 
uncapped safe note with the most favored nation clause, which Alex, this took me a while to understand. So maybe you can walk us through a little bit of what those numbers actually mean. That was why I was handing you the baton and then leaning back in my chair. Okay. There's two safes now, essentially. And a safe is a simple agreement for future equity, S-A-F-E, a funding type that is now essentially, I think, de facto at the earlier stages. What it allows companies to do is to raise money without setting a formal price. And then those safe notes later on will convert with some certain terms. Now, in the case of the $125,000 traditional YC check, it is for 7% of equity in the company. The $375,000 uncapped safe, uncapped meaning that there's no maximum price at which it can convert. This is a founder friendly point. Also has the most favored nation clause or MFN. This is a investor friendly clause. And what it means is whatever the best term is when the company next raises money, that's the deal that YC gets. And so the startup could go out there and raise the next round, you know, at a $100 trillion valuation, and that's the terms that YC would get. But if one investor got in at a $1 billion valuation, that's the term that YC would get. So they just get kind of the best possible next deal. I was talking to Alex Iskold, an avid equity listener um, and the founder Hello, of 2048 Ventures, which actually closed a fund yesterday. But he was saying that like the move from YC is is aggressive and it is the way that it's going to help win against other accelerators and pre-seed funds. But I think the most interesting comment he made is YC is now indexing the universe at startups at a very high check size. So it's betting now like a lot more money on companies that it thinks is going to be successful, which I thought was just like interesting framing. It's like bigger than a check size. It's like this startup isn't this um, accelerator isn't backing less companies. It's backing more and investing more. (laughs) Well, given YC's track record, you know, I'm sure it wasn't impossible to scare up the money. Some negativity about this. Uh, Anaheim and I wrote about this this morning. We talked to a bunch of VCs about the, the changes to the YC deals. And, and there's some concern that there were some, you know, YC alumni angels and some smaller Latin American funds who were previously able to get in a kind of a small check to some of these companies, especially ones that are located outside the U.S. They kind of had their locus or HQ out of our borders and that they were really useful. And now with YC offering this kind of money, they may have less room, less allocation. And also you can't now go drop in 100K into a startup at a at a certain valuation after demo day because they will have this uh, most favorite nation um, uncapped safe. And so that would convert if you price the round and that might be highly diluted depending on the price point. So there's nuance to this, but it does feel like YC got away for a long time without offering that much money. And 500K, even though it is so much more than 125, in the era of, I don't know, checkout.com raised a billion dollars in one round this week. You know, like, I mean, it doesn't seem to be that big. That This is going to limit the number of global companies, especially startups and emerging markets that will want to be or can be in YC or participate in one of its cohorts. I mean, it's great to be a part of YC, but they also kind of need that, that local backer. And so that's a little worrisome from that perspective. And, and her concern was, are we, are we trying to turn these other emerging, these emerging markets into Silicon Valley replicas? And if so, then this could be very bad. I agree with that. That said, I don't think any YC founder is going to say anything negative about YC changing its deal size. I, I just feel like it's so hard to talk down on YC that I was surprised that founders who co-invest with YC were really mad about the deal. And when I actually asked YC for an interview, they said that they're declining all interviews at this time. I think that there's probably some fair critiques going out there that we should pay attention to. But I agree, it's, it's not all negative, And we have to address the fact that the investors who are probably the loudest and angriest about this are it's a financial reason. 
Okay, so I, I look, I want to move on to the changes in accelerators, but I'll, I'll just say this. A lot of the VCs that we talked to had an issue or two or a potential concern or this might not go as well. And, and all that's very reasonable. We also talked to a couple of YC founders, one prior Siggy from BuildBuddy, one current, um, I forget their name from, I think, Wingback. And they were both like, this is dope. But this would have given us so much runway to figure things out after YC. We wouldn't have had to go raise more money. We could have just built. And so, like, I, I'll listen to the investors, but I care about the founders. Yeah. So I think there was like some really basic accelerator characteristics I first learned about and would share in a textbook when I was first um, understanding how YC operated. It was there was always going to be a demo day. There was going to be the standard check size for a percentage ownership and that there was going to be prorata, basically meaning that we're going to see this accelerator who gave you your first start participate in your next round. So investors who are participating in your series A maybe know that the investor who knows you best believes in you enough to keep investing. Yes. And now that's kind of all been flipped on its head. I, I talked to Contrary Capital who thinks that a demo day isn't like the best way for a founder to raise money because founders don't need money on a specific day of the year. I've talked to NextView Ventures, which is saying that we're not going to actually invest in Prorata at all because we want to avoid signaling issues. And then of course, we're seeing YC going back and forth a little bit on that same Prorata investment more recently doubling down on, on in backing the startups at first invests in. We're going to close there. Uh, Marianne, thank you for all your work on the fintech world. Natasha, thank you for all your work on the accelerator front. Uh, the equity team is fully back. We are back to our cadence. We are alive. Most of us don't have COVID and uh, we're going to keep kicking butt. So um, I'm glad we're all back in one piece and we're back Monday morning. Goodbye. <laughs>